All right, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of James. We're going to start a new series in, in James today. And you might think that I've been close, holding it a secret, something close to my heart, because I haven't revealed before today that we're going into James. Um, and you might ask, why James? To be honest with you, I only landed finally on it last week. I like to know a little bit ahead of time what I'm going to be preaching on. Um, and I flip-flopped a lot leading into the study. I eventually got to um, James or 1 John. Um, and after being tossed to and fro by the wind, finally landed on James. If it sounds frightfully, frightfully uninspiring to you, um, you can be comforted by two truths. And the first is that God is sovereign. He knows what our church needs when we need it. And the second is that when it comes to expository preaching, the truth is that any book will do. Um, so we are going to be greatly blessed, I believe, as we go through this letter. We're only going to do one verse today. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1, and we're going to do an introduction to the, the epistle. Let's read together. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we do thank you for the excitement that we have in coming to a new study. Your word is precious to us. We know that as we preach your word and as we hear your word, your children will be accompanied by your spirit in making application of that word. And we pray that you would do that as your people, that we would not just be hearers of the word, that we would be doers of it as well. We pray that you would implant the word in our hearts and that it would bring forth a harvest of righteousness in us. We ask again as we meet with you today, Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us, your, blue, your beauty, your splendor, your glory, that we may love you and know you more. Amen. They, they say that opposites attract, right? And any married couple will know there's bound to be at least some ways in which you are different, opposite to your spouse. And one of the ways that Sheree and I are somewhat different, maybe opposites, is how we approach uh, theology. Our minds work differently. Our hearts work differently. Sheree is more naturally obedient than I am. She's more practically minded. She sits down and listens to a sermon and she says, okay, where's the list? Tell me what to do and I'll go and do it. If Jesus has said it, I'll obey it. That's my wife. I'm different. I'm, my attitude is don't tell me how to live my life. And if you do, you better explain why. Just give me the theology and I'll work it out myself. That's, that's my heart. The reason behind the doing needs to take root and and catch fire in my heart, or I'm not going to move very easily. I'm like that one kid that you have that always asks why, right? If you've got multiple kids, you've got at least one of those. Why? 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 I get Paul. I love the book of Romans, 11 chapters of deep and rich theology. And then at the end, he attaches some instruction. And Ephesians, three chapters of glorious Christology. And then three chapters of practical imperatives. 
And so I understand a little bit as we come to the letter of James, why Martin Luther would say, you remember when he, he read James, he called it a, a book of straw. Now he's being way too harsh, but in my heart, I understand a little bit. James doesn't speak about the person of Christ much. He doesn't speak about the work of Christ pretty much at all. As we go through James, you won't see mention of the, the cross or what the cross accomplishes. Luther accused James of driving straight to the law and to its works. James is, if you're listening to James, if you're sitting in a classroom listening to James and you pipe up, but why? James's message to you would be, keep quiet and listen. There are 108 verses in James and in that space there are 59 commandments. It's a book of action, of doing, of obedience. Some have even accused James of contradicting Paul. Did you know that? There's this really important passage right in the middle of the letter where James is speaking about faith. Now, we know that Paul said what? That we are justified by faith, not by works. What does James say? We are justified by works and not by faith alone. How do you hold those two seemingly opposing statements together? I'm not gonna tell you today, just wetting your appetite. But we will see that as in marriage opposites attract, the same is true for James and Paul. They may be different in their voice, but they are not contradictory. They are in perfect harmony. Like Ray and I have experienced harmony in our marriage. Sheree loves deep theology, and that's thanks to me, I think. I'm joking. Uh, she was at the, I didn't say that at the early service. She's gone now, so I can say what I want, I think. From being married to Sheree, I've learned you can't live with your head in the clouds. You need to walk in action. You need to man up and do and be. And though I'm sure he would take it back now, we will experience the opposite of what Luther said when he called James a book of straw. James is rich. It is beautiful. He is a masterful preacher. The, the book is full of imagery and illustrations that capture the heart and the mind. James is concise. He chooses his words carefully. But if you come to the book and you think the theology of James isn't rich, I'm sure that this study will change your mind. It is deep and practical. Somebody has said that James is street-level theology. He is writing vividly to help struggling Christians live out their faith in a difficult world. So James, the, the book of James follows on well from Matthew 13, the series that we did there where we learned what it means to be citizens of Christ's kingdom, that our hearts belong to him because he is our king. And as we do a little introduction today, it'll serve us well going forward to get to know James a little bit in his letter. So that's what we're going to do today. Two headings, James's life and James's letter. Number one, James's life. The first word of verse one, James. We're gonna stop there and spend some time there. And those of you who thought that because we're doing one verse, it was gonna be a short sermon, now you're squirming in your seats. Which James are we talking about here? When James writes, he doesn't feel the need to expand on who he is, he just says James. So it implies to us that he was well known to his readers. There's an authority there that's accepted. Now there are only a few Jameses in the New Testament. 
And a few of them are obscure, like James, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the father of Judas, another disciple of Jesus, not Judas Iscariot. In fact, James, there's only mentioned, I think, to differentiate that Judas from Judas Iscariot. These two Jameses are probably too obscure to have written the letter. There's James, the brother of John, perhaps more famous and known from the Gospels, but he was martyred early on. You can read of his martyrdom in Acts chapter 12, around 44 AD, probably too early to have written the letter. Most likely, and this is the view of most scholars and most of the early church fathers, we're talking about James, the brother of the Lord. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Matthew 13, 55 to 56 tells us that he had at least four brothers and three sisters. And James was one of them. Judas was another. We know him as Jude from the letter that he wrote. In Galatians 1 verse 19, Paul calls this James an apostle. And in Galatians 2, he calls him a pillar in the early church. He was so well known that when Jude wrote his letter, how does he identify himself? But he says, Jude, the brother of James. James appears a few times in the book of Acts. One of the lengthiest appearances is in Acts chapter 15, where he leads that first church council. The gospel was spreading into all the world, and it wasn't spreading anymore just among the Jews. It was going to the Gentiles as well, and so the the Jew and the Gentile find themselves in the same body, saved by the same Christ, the same grace, same church. And so there was this tension in the early church. How do we live together in the same body? Do Gentiles need to become like Jews? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to obey the whole Mosaic law? These were the questions the early church was facing. And so a council was convened in order to debate this question. And there was great debate at the council. We see people like Peter and Paul and Barnabas stand up and speak and they testify to the truth that salvation comes to the Gentiles. It has come to the Gentiles by faith apart from works. And finally, James stands up the end, and he gives the decisive word in Acts 15, 13 to 17. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. James says, you're starting to see these things fulfilled in your midst. And then he wrote a letter to the Gentile Christians. He gave them certain instructions, saying this basically is how you would live compassionately with your fellow brothers and sisters who are Jews. And what's interesting here for us is that there are striking similarities between the letter that James wrote to those Gentiles in Acts 15 and the epistle of James. There are words that are very rare that are used in both, and there are stylistic similarities. Further to that, the content of James fits the context of Acts and that situation where Jews were forced to flee from Jerusalem. James is writing from Jerusalem as a pastor to them, the 12 tribes in dispersion, facing trials, challenges as they go out into the world. And if you consider James's life, you see him in the book of Acts, you see him 
here or there in the Gospels, you do have to ask the question, don't you? How does James become a pillar in the church? Let's consider for a little bit his life before church leadership. His life before church leadership. Sheree, the other day, overheard um, our boys talking to one another, Noah speaking to Judah. Speaking is not really the right term. Noah was preaching at Jude. He said to him, you know, Jude, Jesus died for your sin so that you wouldn't have to die. And how does Jude respond to that preaching? I know, I know, I know already, Noah. Right, younger brothers? Do you respond well to the preaching of your older brother? Noah comes out of the room and says to Sheree, Mom, Jude won't clean because he doesn't want to make a sacrifice. (laughs) Younger brothers don't readily listen to their older brothers. And you younger brothers, what would it take for you to believe that your older brother was the Messiah, the Son of God? Imagine them growing up together. Imagine growing up as Jesus' brother. James is out there in the garden. There's a fight between him and Jude. Joseph storms out in exasperation. says, what's going on here? Now, James, the elder, would usually know in any normal family situation, he'd know it's my word against my brother's. But Joseph says, don't make me ask. What, ask Jesus what happened here, right? How did it go growing up for them? Did Mary and Joseph make Jesus, I mean, make the, the other siblings wear those, what would Jesus do, wristbands? <laughs> like we know from the Gospels that James did not grow up believing in Jesus. Mark 3, 21, Jesus is speaking to crowds and he's drawing more and more crowds, and it says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. John 7, another occasion, the Feast of Tabernacles is approaching, and his brothers actually say to him scornfully, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, for not even his brothers believed in him. And finally, you come to the cross. And we know some of the people who were there when Jesus was being crucified. We know Mary was there. But there's no mention made of his brothers or sisters. In fact, Jesus gives instructions to John for the care of Mary. So we believe there's a good chance James wasn't even there when Jesus was being crucified. What changed? What changed between the Gospels, that James, and the book of Acts, that James? What turned James, the doubter who thought his brother was crazy, into James, the pillar of the church? James, the just, as his nickname has gone down in church history, who had a passion for righteousness and the purity of the church, a passion for the marginalized and care of the lowly. What changed him? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about it. He tells how Jesus rose and how he appeared to 500, over 500 people and to the apostles. And he says, and then he appeared to James. Can you imagine that moment? He grew up with him. He didn't believe in him, even when he did and saw some of his miracles. And maybe he wasn't even there as Jesus was being crucified. 
But after that event, after his crazy brother's revolution fails, what happens? Christ appears. Maybe there was a knock at the door. James, it's me. James, I'm alive. What changed James was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the same with Saul, wasn't it? On the road to Damascus, ready to persecute the church, again he's going. And Jesus appears to him, changes everything, including his name. Paul's life would never be the same again. If you wanna talk about a case for Christianity, this is a good case, isn't it? These men who we know historically existed, we have their letters, even secular scholarship doesn't deny the existence of Paul and the letters written by Paul, the existence of James as we have it in Acts 15. Both of them denied Christ. They denied him. And then later on they said he was dead, but he arose and we know because he appeared to us. He appeared to me. Both of them martyred for their faith. James was martyred probably in 62 A.D., He didn't recant, he didn't change his mind. Whoa, I'm out, all right? The ruse was fun while it lasted. What a funny joke we've played on all the world saying that Jesus rose again, there was none of that. He went to the grave stating, I saw him, he appeared to me. James was a changed man by the resurrection of Christ. If you want to discredit Christianity, all you have to do is discredit the resurrection. But you have to do it literally over James's dead body. You may be here today with many reasons that you don't believe in Jesus. You may have questions about scripture, points of the theology that don't sit well with you. But at the end of the day, it boils down to this, doesn't it? This man, Jesus Christ, who said the grave would not hold him, Did he rise from the grave? Because if he did, then he is who he says he is. The problems that you have with the faith are secondary to this issue. Did Jesus rise again? He is who he says he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. He is the bread of life. He is the good shepherd with abundant life available for you today. He is the resurrection and the life. Everything changed for James, and he's writing that it would be the same for you, that your life would not be the same. Notice the way that he identifies himself. If I was writing, I think I'd be tempted to play the family of Jesus Christ card. James certainly loves the word brother. We see it in his letter 13 times as he exhorts the people that he loves, pleading to them, my brothers, my brothers, my beloved brothers, again and again. But when he writes of the one who in fact was a physical brother, there's no language of any special status for James. He does not see special status in being physically related to Christ. He rejoices in being spiritually born again through Christ, the status that he shares with his readers, that he shares with us today. We are adopted into the family of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And James rejoices in just being known as this. James, a servant, literally a slave of God, 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does the younger brother come to say that of him? Ligon Duncan comments on this. He said he could have introduced this letter by saying from James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He could have said from James, the most important pastor in the most important church in Palestine. He could have said from James, a pillar of the church of God. He could have said from James, the moderator of the first general assembly. He could have said from James, the brother of our Lord. And that would have been true. But that is not how he introduces this letter. He says, James, a bond servant. James, a permanent, willing slave to Christ. And who is Jesus to James now? He says he is Lord Curios. In the same breath, he says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing in putting them together like that? In putting their names together, he's making a claim about Christ that would have been blasphemous to the Jews. He's speaking about the, the divine Christ. In 2 verse 1, he says, Clearly, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Literally, the glorious one. Every Jew knew the words of the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord, God says. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. And James says, well, Christ, he is the glorious one. The glory of the Father belongs to the Son. That is the letter, the, the heartbeat of this letter. Christ is worthy of all glory and all honor in our lives. James is gonna say to us, if you are a Christian, it must show. If you are a Christian, it shows in your obedience to him as Christ is Lord. You're striving for his glory. It's a correlation that is simple for James. You wanna call him Lord, then you are his servant. It can be no other way. Is that how you think of your life? Is this the framework from which you live? I am his Slave, before anything else, before I am a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a friend, before I'm a doctor or an engineer, a teacher, a baker, a candlestick maker, before I am Afrikaans or English or Zulu, before anything else, I am a servant of Christ. My life he has bought, my love he owns. For James, this truth brings liberty, it brings joy. This is the blessed life to be a slave of Christ. That's why James talks about the law as being the, the law of liberty. James would have us walk in the same freedom in Christ, even though this freedom calls us to trial and to suffering. Is Jesus your Lord? Are you a servant to Christ? That's what this letter is gonna confront us with. Let's talk a little bit about the letter, number two, James's letter. Verse one again, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. To understand James's heart and writing, we should understand the line that he's drawing from Old Testament to New Testament. There are times in the history of Israel where they experienced this great testing and trial as they were far from home. They come out of Egypt through the Exodus, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, but in the wilderness, what are they doing? They're looking for home. They struggle against the enticements of the nations. They struggle against compromise. They're battling to find a home. 
in exile later on. That exile came because they didn't win the battle against compromise. And it led to their judgment. They were sent out into Babylon, but still there was a remnant of God's people who remained and they were to keep their identity as the people of God in their exile. James draws that image from the Old Testament and brings it into the New Testament context regarding the covenant people of God. I believe the context for this letter is Acts chapter 11, 19 and 20. Christianity started in Jerusalem, but what happened? Persecution comes to the church, and, and so Christians are forced to flee from Jerusalem. Satan thought to squash the church, but all he did succeeded in doing was spreading them out into the world. And they went with the gospel, but they went into places where they faced challenge and hardship. And James is writing as a pastor to these Jewish Christians in their exile. Alec Matcha says this in his commentary. They are the Lord's 12 tribes and they are dispersed throughout a menacing and testing world. Their homeland is elsewhere and they have not yet come to take up their abode there. Their present lot is to feel the weight of life's pressures, the lure of the world's temptations and an insidious, ever-present encouragement to conform to the standards of their pagan environment. They are the Lord's people indeed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb himself, but not yet home. So their situation is our situation as well. In fact, Peter later, much later, writing to Jew and to Gentile, he greets them with a similar greeting. In, his, in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Like James, he'll call the church to holiness under trial, to magnify the name of Christ in a dark world, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are, church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the church's call. And James, like Peter, wants to help us walk out and live out our faith in our exile. The way that James writes his letter is quite unique. His voice is unique in the New Testament. He doesn't sound like Paul. He doesn't sound like John. doesn't sound like the author of Hebrews or Peter. He has his own voice, and it comes across in three main ways, proverbially, prophetically, and pastorally. So James first is, is proverbial in his voice. He jumps from one thing to another so quickly. His points are made punchy and quick that you take them and apply them to your life. That's what he expects. It's for this reason that James has been come, to, come to be known as the wisdom literature or the Proverbs of the New Testament. So reading through James, it's like you're, you're reading Proverbs, and we see these Proverbs sprinkled throughout. James as well has an emphasis on the need that we have living in exile to live in wisdom. He says, you come to your Father and you ask for wisdom. We are to earnestly desire it and seek it. James is observing the, the behavior of the church and what he wants to do in this letter is hold up a mirror so that we could see ourselves in it, see that, that behavior. And that wisdom would have its intended effect, holiness and purity, following Christ. James is prophetic as well in his voice. He often speaks with the fiery language that we see sometimes in the Old Testament prophets. He speaks against inconsistency and hypocrisy. He speaks against the unjust treatment of the poor. 
Listen, for example, to what he says. Listen to this language in James 5. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. At one point in the letter, he cries out, you adulterous people. He sounds a lot at times like Isaiah and Amos, doesn't he? And yet throughout, we also see him speak pastorally with tenderness and mercy for those who are struggling and facing trial and suffering. He is writing to those he loves again and again. He calls them brothers, urging them to faith and to virtue. And as you read through James, and I encourage you to do that, read through it as many times as you can as we go through the series. What you'll find is, even as he speaks sometimes as a, a sage or a seer or as a shepherd, you'll, you'll find yourself thinking, he sounds a whole lot like somebody else. And who is that? But Jesus Christ himself, more than any other New Testament author, James's letter depends on the teachings of Jesus. So he doesn't outright quote Jesus in his letter, but you see the teachings of Christ woven into the fabric of his instruction. So much so that you can only conclude that you're listening to somebody who is soaked in the words of his Lord as if he grew up with him or something. Now James may not have gotten it at first, but as you listen to him speak now, it's almost like he can't speak without sounding like Jesus Christ. His heart has been transformed through the resurrection. And he speaks with this intention that other hearts would be transformed into the image of Christ. If you wanna be discipled, come to the book of James. Just to whet your appetite, here are a few of the similarities between James and Jesus how he borrows from the gospels or borrows from the teaching of Christ. We see this in James. Love your neighbor as a great commandment. Self-exaltation leading to hum humiliation. He speaks of not taking oaths, but letting your yes be yes and your no, no. He speaks about how the moth destroys riches, how the Lord is coming, how he's even at the door. He speaks of the danger of judging others and the blessed state of the peacemaker the truth that believers are to rejoice in trials, how we are to come to God as a perfect father for, for good gifts from him. He speaks about how we are to be doers, not just hearers of the words and act upon our profession of faith. He says and speaks about how we will be accountable for every word and the impossibility of serving two different masters. Now, James may not spell out a particular Christology in his letter, speaking of the person and the work of Christ, maybe like Paul does more fully, but James's gospel is not a different gospel. He focuses on faith at work, doing, not just hearing. Someone has said of James as well that his letter is not so hard to understand as it is to put into practice. And this is the paradox as you come to James. 59 commandments and 108 verses, and you think to yourself, I, I can't do it. I can't obey all of this. 
But James is not the legalist that people have accused him of being because in his letter, he doesn't cause us to strive for independence and self-reliance. James wants to drive us to rely upon Christ, to depend upon him. Even in demanding obedience in this letter, James is not unaware of our inability to follow the law. We see this tension, this paradox. James says in 126, we are to control the tongue. But then in chapter three, verse eight, he says, no man can tame it. In 127, he says, this is what pure religion looks like, that you keep yourself unstained from the world. And then in chapter four, one to four, he says, it is in our envy and our quarreling that flow from our passions that show we are worldly. And so this tension reveals the gospel of James that we're gonna find. It is mercy that triumphs over judgment, 2, two verse 13. For the Lord is compassionate and merciful, 511. And even after the scathing indictment of our condition in chapter four, one to five, I believe chapter four, verse six is the culmination, the, the climax of this letter. He says, but God gives more grace. We sing it here, right? Grace greater than all our sin. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So James calls us not to rely on our own strength, but to run to God. He says, submit yourselves to God, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, mourn and weep, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The gospel is not absent from James's letter. This letter is a message for struggling sinners, a message about the grace of God. In fact, the strength to obey God does not, is not to be found in ourselves. James says in 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And he says in 1.21, to receive the meekness of the implant, receive in meekness the implanted word. And that is what we aim to do in this series. We wanna receive the word in meekness. May God's grace overwhelm us through this next season as we grow together, as we are discipled by James. And may that word implanted produce in the church a harvest of righteousness in us. Are you a servant of Jesus Christ? Maybe you are, and yet you feel today the weight of that call, the difficulty of living it out as an exile in the world. You're facing trials maybe that you are struggling to overcome and you don't think you can do it. Now, I spoke to somebody just this week about the, the difficulty they, they're facing at work, a very difficult situation high up in a company where they've just started to see evil all around, breaking of, of laws and wickedness, and they feel like they're the only ones standing up to it and, and almost at a, at a position where they might lose all because of their belief in Jesus. Sometimes that's what we are called to as followers of Christ. May James remind you and, uh, and me of the joy, the abundance of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. And may he remind us that in every situation, whatever trial we face, this is never not true. Jesus is a good master. He is a kind master. Are you denying Jesus today? Maybe you aren't following him. Maybe you aren't his servant. It's my prayer that the transformation that we see in James would be a transformation we see in you. 
the transformation that can only come through the resurrection of Christ, the fact that He is alive and reigning, and He is who He says that He is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, Father, for the gift of this letter. And Lord, our prayer as we come excitedly to this new series is simple. We ask again that you would use your word and that you would move in power for your church, that you would challenge us. We pray that you would disciple us, that through this process we would become more and more like the Lord that we love and desire to follow. Because, God, we confess our weakness. We need you. We need your help. We need your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. Even as we leave from here, we know that there are going to be many opportunities this week to sin, to fear, to anxiety, to selfishness, to wandering from you. We need you to take hold of our hearts and cling to us. Hold us and shepherd us, we pray. Amen. Um, as a benediction uh, before we go, and again, I remind you, if you do need prayer, um, please come forward for that, and, and there will be somebody ready to pray with you. I will do that, okay. Okay. Let me... Um, yeah, let me do that right now before the benediction then. Uh, Father, Lord, we know that um, even as we look at world events that uh, we look around us and there are things that make us afraid. There are things that are completely out of our control. Um, and yet we know that nothing is out of your control, that you have a sovereign purpose and a plan in all things and in our world. We know that there is nothing that will override, will avert your plan. We know that we look forward to the end where the gospel has changed this world, where Christ returns. There's no more pain, there's no more war, no more killing or violence. We look forward with yearning to that, Lord, but we, we live in the world now, Father, and we ask that you would have your hand over the situation that is in Ukraine, Lord, and what's, what's going on there, Father. We pray that you would bring an end to the war, to the loss of life. Father, there are people losing their lives who do not know you. We pray for courage for the church. We thank you for their example, and we pray that you would help them to stand firm to preach the gospel no matter the cost. Lord, we pray that you would use this war to save people, that they would be driven to you. We pray for your goodness to shine through. And Lord, may the result of this be a church that is stronger, a church that is closer, and a church that is growing by your power, we ask. Amen. I'm just going to read to you Psalm 18, um, 1 to 3 again. Let the words penetrate your heart and be your truth this week. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock 
in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Amen.